Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Monday the 10th of September with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The autumn political term gets underway next week with political parties preparing now for the resumption of dull business. Fianna Fáil will meet tomorrow following what its party leader says has been a week that saw Leo Vradker trying to create an aura of instability around his own government. Writing today in the Irish Examiner Micheál Martin claims the Taoiseach has been playing games, attempting again to blame everyone else for his government's shortcomings. The focus in the coming weeks will be on the budget for next year. But as you know, Fine Gael wants Fianna Fáil to renew its confidence and supply agreement with the government beforehand to give certainty to decision-making and political stability for the next two years. Micheál Martin says in his article today, though, that a review of of that arrangement will be held in accordance with the agreed process and not on the basis of unilateral political games. Thomas Byrne, Fianna Fáil frontbench spokesperson on the line. Good morning to you and thanks for joining morning, us. Michael. Is this just political posturing between the two leaders or is the relationship between the parties as tense as perhaps we're being led to believe? Well, look, I mean, the relationship between the parties is playing out in the media. Unfortunately, that's the way Fine Gael seemed to to like to do things. Um, last week, Leo Fadgar even, even expressed shock that this wasn't Michal Martin's way of doing things. Look, the reality is the most important thing for us is uh, the budget what a, and what's the best outcome for the people of Ireland in that budget. That's the key thing for us. That's what our focus is on. Whether it's in housing, whether it's in health, whether it's in education, we're getting our ducks in a row for that budget to make sure that our stamp is on that and there will be tangible benefits for the people of Ireland. Why so? Because because that's the most important thing that we should be doing. But is it possible to achieve, uh, given the assessment of uh, the current administration from Micheál Martin in his article today? He's very critical in terms of what uh, the government has been doing uh, in terms of the health service, in terms of housing and in terms of Brexit. Yeah, well, look, we've signed up for, for three budgets, OK? So we try to get our stamp on each of those budgets. After this, the next budget, there will be a review of those three budgets, of the entire confidence and supply agreement, to see how has it actually delivered, whether it should be stopped or whether it should be extended. So that's going to happen at that point. And you are right to raise questions because there has been a severe lack of delivery on health, severe lack of delivery uh, on uh, housing, and even on education in my own area, while superficially some things are, are improving, they're improving because of the confidence and supply agreement. You know, even when the teacher, the teacher is first of all going around the country saying our plan is working, uh, and then when, he, when it's actually pointed out to him that, say, for example, the plan on housing isn't working, he's after blaming local authorities, including local councillors actually around the country, uh, for delaying uh, the building of housing. I think that's very, very disingenuous. And as we've seen from media reports, this is a, a pattern actually that uh, has taken over Fine Gael, not just in recent weeks, but actually in recent years, that every time there's a problem in housing, they tell us 
there's no overnight fix. Now, that's gone on for years. And really, we have to see substantial progress in housing. We, we're putting forward proposals during the budget negotiations on affordable housing and other matters as well. But the bottom line is they have to build more houses and mm. they're not building enough. So you tell us, uh, and I'm not disputing that is the case, but there are many people who would say this government is your government. This government is a government that Fianna Fáil is party to. We're not party to it. If we were party to it, we would be in, in Cabinet office, we would be making decisions. We're not party to it. We are facilitating government. We, if people need to be reminded, would much rather have been in government ourselves. Is that not exactly the problem, that people need to be reminded? No, they don't need to remind us of what I said. We would much rather, but unfortunately your question prompts me to remind, to remind everybody about this, that we simply came a few seats short. No independents, no other parties uh, supported us. We had an obligation actually to make sure that the country had a government to give stability for the country. Uh, that was necessary and it remains necessary, actually, despite the instability at the moment, which has been put forward uh, by Fine Gael. Because what's happened over the last few weeks in particular is that Leo Varadkar seems to be playing some kind of weird game, and that's just to be blunt about it. Mm. Um, and even we have independent analysis such as um, Jodie Corcoran of the Sunday Independent, the headline, My Addiction to Political Drama. The teacher seems to love political drama. The real example of that last week was before Michal Martin had a chance to reply to a letter uh, to the Taoiseach about the government and the serious business of government, the Taoiseach had tweeted the whole thing out, briefed all the newspapers. Mm. I mean, that's not the way uh, to run a country. And certainly if you were telling us that, if the Taoiseach is telling us that his priority is health and homeless, well, it, 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 it doesn't seem like that is actually the case uh, when in fact he is putting out and pushing out this political drama, pushing out this political instability. For what purpose, we don't know. It could be as... Uh, Jodie Corcoran says yes, simply because he likes drama and he likes a bit of chaos, mm. or it could be that he's trying to force a general election, which we don't believe is necessary, but he seems to want to hold, but doesn't seem to want to attract any flack for holding, because he realises that the people of Ireland agree that there is a need for stability, and Fianna Fáil have been providing that stability, while at the same time making sure uh, that policies are delivered that relate to people on the ground, and this type of political drama, political shenanigans... Um, political chaos that the teacher seems intent on causing and being at the centre of is not relevant to the real lives of Irish people. All right, but you're conjuring up an image here of the master of spin, namely Leo Varadkar. I'm I'm quoting from newspaper articles yesterday, so you don't need to take my word for for it, Michael. This is what various journalists are saying to read the Mail on Sunday, Independent. Lots of commentators and observers are are making these points. Oh, well, well, that's fair enough. But what I'm interested in, and I'm sure what your constituents are interested in, is your opinion. And uh, it uh, appears to me that you're uh, of the view that Leo Varadkar is the master of spin, who can spin failed policies uh, in such a, a way that he continues to get the support of Fianna Fáil. Uh, it's a position that makes no, no he sense. Doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't have a support. We, we're facilitating a government in well, turn for, for getting our policies. There's a very delivered. thin have, line between the be two. Honest, well, it's, it's difficult. Look, I'll acknowledge it's a difficult situation to be in, and it's one we'd rather not be in, but for the sake of the country, uh, we said that we, and for the sake of actually our honesty, because we said we wouldn't go into coalition with Fine Gael before the election, so we didn't do that. We didn't take the temptation that Fine Gael offered us of cabinet seats because we felt we had to be honest to the voters that elected us in terms of what we said before the election. But we said, let's use the votes that we have, you know, in contrast to what's happening between Sinn Féin and the Unionists in the North, let's actually use our votes to try to deliver for people on the ground. And that has been our focus in each of the last budgets and is, is our focus entirely this week next week and the week after in the run-up to this budget. Our focus is not on an election. If the Taoiseach decides to call an election or does something more to, to destabilise this arrangement, we'll have to deal with that at that point. But at the moment, our focus is on actually dealing with the real issues, 
not engaging in political high drama, not engaging mm. in stuff that would be very funny in a college political society. That, that's exactly what's going on. And I think that I think we're, we're trying to, you know, show a bit of grown-upness uh, with this whole process. And I think we are succeeding at the moment because the Taoiseach, you know, despite putting stuff into the media last week, seems to have somewhat backed off his threats, although he did say uh, rather childishly that he'd keep asking us. Uh, but we're not. Mm. We're, we're going to stick by the agreement that we've signed. It's very, very important to us, Michael. I mean, you know, there was... People have looked at our party over the years. I think one of the key things for us is to, you know, we've been rebuilding the trust of the Irish people. I think one of the things that we can show to the people is uh, that we have stood by our word in this conference and supply agreement. But that is the problem, isn't it? The focus is not really on the budget. The focus is not really on stability. The focus really is on the polls. And if there was to be an election tomorrow... Sorry, sorry, Michael. I I don't know. The focus is very much on the budget. Very much on the budget. That a massive amount of money is going to be dished out by the government and we've got to make sure that it's spent appropriately, that it's spent carefully, that we don't go back to the ways of the past, but Mm. also that it's spent on public services that we can del- deliver for people in health and housing. Actually, nothing else matters in the next few weeks, polls or, or chaos or whatever. Our focus is on what, what matters. When, the, when a government is spending billions of euros and planning how to spend billions of euros, that is the most important job that Irish politicians have. It is the most important job that I have at the moment to make sure uh, that education gets its fair share, do, that we do, have an influence are, on that. Are you confident that that's going to be the case, uh, that well, the sorry, spending sorry, will Michael, be prudent? That, that is the case. Uh, whether, but are you whether, confident whether you that, the, that the spending will be prudent? Uh, yes, and I think that's part of the reason for the conference's supply agreement is to have prudent spending, because if, if you go back to the last election, with Fine Gael promising to completely abolish the USC, which obviously wasn't possible, they seem to have changed mm. tack on that now, but they're back now promising hundreds of euros to, to various interest groups. I see that Leo Varadkar is, is doing that. We'd rather see what money is available with a focus on, yes, giving relief okay. to, to working families, but also okay. making sure that public services are looked after, that health housing, education, etc. Okay, uh, as, uh, as prudent as has been the case the last couple of years, uh, because we're in this situation this morning where your party leader is talking about one million people waiting uh, for a hospital appointment. He, he's talking about uh, the housing uh, problem and uh, the way that it was dealt with last week by Leo Radker and Owen Murphy and this issue that you've mentioned now about blaming councils as being depressing as much as it was cynical. Uh, and indeed, he's talking talking about Brexit and the problems that the government is facing. Indeed, all of us are facing because of the government's approach to that. And that is the type of issues that you'll be giving these people the authority to deal with again, is it not? No, the, the doll has authority over financial matters. So these people, as you call them, Fine Gael, um, they can't do anything without you know the doll agreeing to it. Without you know, if we object to it, it can't happen. So what we want to do is we have forty-four seats in there. Uh, we want to make sure that we use our influence to the best of mm. our ability to make sure those forty-four TDs, which is about a quarter of the doll, is represented. There okay. is no other party doing that, by the way. They'll all go in and crib and moan, Sinn Fein, etc. We're going to try and make mm. sure that. But from our the- but from our listeners' point of view, these people are those people in Fine Gael and yourselves in Fianna Fáil because you continue to give them the support that they need. 
Well, it's not, it's not a question of giving them the support that they need. The question is getting support for policies that the country needs. But what's uh, the point in telling us that and then coming along and telling us that, that, that you've got a, a, a Taoiseach uh, who's playing political games uh, and that his policies... saying that, Michael. The various newspapers were saying that over the weekend. I mean, that's, that's obvious to the general public. You don't need Fianna Fáil to tell you that. But what difference does it make if the man on the moon is saying it? it? So I, I answered about it, but I mean... Yes. I, I'm telling you what our main focus is on the budget and actually delivering for people. And Brian Cowan telling uh, Leo Varadkar to act like an adult and give up the clever boy tactics? Yeah, Brian Cowan is, Brian Cowan is a former Taoiseach and I think that Leo Varadkar would be wise to take his advice and I think he possibly did in previous times. So so I think, um, look, that's, that's there. That's there. That's a fact. That's, that's what's happening at the moment and anybody with eyes uh, to see or ears to listen or any kind of senses at all can see uh, and, and, and understand that this is what the Taoiseach is doing at the moment. And we're saying that needs to stop. By the way, Michael, it appears to have calmed down a little bit, apart from obviously the, the spin does continue. We saw the military helicopter landing in Inishman and the Taoiseach jumping off it in the, the, the sort of the top gun routine. Uh, that sort of stuff is, you know, in some ways is tittle-tattle, but in other ways is actually symbolic of where their focus is. So they'll blame the local authority, blame our local councillors. They were the, the last people you blame, actually, uh, for the housing crisis uh, while not delivering themselves. And we're saying... Please turn that focus 100, 180 degrees around uh, to the budget and delivering for the Irish people. And that's what we're attempting to do. And, you know, we are entitled to make these criticisms of Leo Varadkar. We're not the only ones that's doing that. But the aim of making those criticisms, Michael, is to make sure that his and his government's focus is on delivering for the people in the budget and, and, and making sure that everything is done that it can improve our health service, our housing, our education service, etc., uh, in the budget. And I don't believe mm. that the focus of Fine Gael has been on that in the last number of weeks, because even if you read other media articles from, from Fine Gael as well, they're all in panic mode, apparently, themselves at the moment, as to whether he or not he's going to cause an election. So they're all concerned about this play-acting with the Taoiseach as well. But so it, that it, has to stop. Is that not part of the job? Uh, I think uh, Bertie Hearn was uh, a bit of a play-actor at times, and certainly uh, very good at spinning the test on Taoiseach as he was Well, he known. never, he never, for all his faults, he, and, uh, he never, ever um, play-acted around the time of an election. There were, uh, we, we, people knew when elections were going to happen <laughs> and there were substances run out. A few people were surprised one Sunday morning when they woke up to find he had gone to the park. Yeah, but it was, the five years was up at that point. I mean, it was either that Sunday or the Monday or the Tuesday. It wasn't a question of, is it this week, next week, next year, which is what the, the game the Taoiseach mm. played at the moment. The other thing about Bertie Hearn is in the contrast between the Taoiseach. Bertie Hearn actively engaged with the British, actively engaged with nationalists and unionists in Northern Ireland as well, mm. trying to bring about not just the Good Friday Agreement, but oh, all of the... Oh, did, yes. Uh, and Champagne Charlie was buying elections. Can I just say with Bertie Hearn, that's a contrast with Leo Varadkar, who has no engagement, it seems to me, with the unionists. He hasn't spoken to Arlene Foster in months, we heard. No relationship with Theresa May whatsoever, it seems, as well. And that was criticism Michal Martin gave in an excellent speech in Oxford at the weekend, if anyone was to read it. It's a, it's a fabulous speech. Uh, but he hasn't shown uh, that type of commitment to something beyond what's happening in the media this week. Yes, all Taoiseach previously spun the media. There's no question about that. But they also had deep and underlying relationships with the people they needed to have relationships with in the context of Northern Ireland with the parties there and with the British. The Taoiseach seems to go for the spin and the substance under him simply is not there. There is no, there is no substance to his relationships with the UK or his relationships with unionists, and that's to all of our detriment. But what, what's the Fianna Fáil bottom line on all of this? Uh, I, I mean, if Leo Varadkar is uh, to 
tell your party that you need to renew the confidence and supply agreement before the budget is agreed or else there will be an election? Does that mean that there will be an election? Well, we've already said no and he hasn't called an election. So, you know, we'll, we'll wait and see. If he asks us again, he's going to get the same answer. And at the, all the while, you know, myself and my colleagues, are, our officials within the party are working hard on the budget. And I assume civil servants are doing the same. And if Finnegan ministers can... can let themselves off the distraction from the teacher as well. I'm sure they're trying to do a bit of this too. So, so he needs to concentrate on the budget. That's within the conference supply agreement. That's what both parties agreed to. Uh, and we need to, you know, not decide to have extra time in a match two-thirds of the way through the match, but rather let the match end, let the budget happen. Let us see what we can deliver, what resources are there, and share them out as fairly and as properly as possible. And then after the match, then see what the result is. Uh, by analysing the conference supply agreement and then see, is there extra time or is that the end of the match uh, and is that the time for an election? So, Leo, so, so, so Leo Radker will have to lose the match in order to deliver a budget, is it? No, we want the country to win the match. We want the country mm. to, to succeed. That's, that's what our primary aim is. It's not about winners and losers in the political sphere because if we wanted that, we could have played a lot of games over the last number of years and we haven't done that if you look at our record. We have not brought in stability. The only instability was around the time of Francis Fitzgerald. We were accused of destabilising everything, damaging Brexit negotiations, etc., etc. But what was the result? We were right. Francis Fitzgerald had to resign at that time. Um, and, 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 and Fine Gael eventually accepted that uh, for political reasons. Um, so we have done nothing to destabilise this government. We will work diligently towards this budget. When that's over then, there will be a review of the Conference of Supply Agreement, not just of this budget, but of the three budgets, to see what has been delivered and to see what possibly can be delivered if it were to be extended after that. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. But many thanks indeed for joining us here this morning. Finnafall TD in Meath East, Thomas Byrne, is his party's spokesperson on education and skills. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, speaking of uh, the budget, as we were a moment ago, an exemption from property tax for hundreds of uh, thousands of pensioners is being proposed within government. Uh, the proposal is coming from the Independent Alliance Ministers and would see anybody aged over 66 on a fixed income and also people with disabilities avoid the tax. And Dempsey, communications manager with Third Age, joins us now. And I'm sure there'd be a lot of people who would be very happy not to pay this unpopular tax. Very much so, Michael. We've talked about this in the past, you and I. And uh, I mean, I take the point about people being on fixed incomes and uh, people with disabilities, and it would be very, very welcome. I mean, in terms of our older callers to Senior Line, our national helpline for older people, most I've just come through some of the calls recently, and they're all, as you can imagine, about people's personal situation. You know, they're people are anxious, they've had a row, they're worried mm. about their sons or their daughters. All the stuff, the human stuff that we all deal with. But coming up around the property time and budget, that the calls around money and managing and Christmas and all that, they do come into sway. So it would be very, very welcome. But. I suppose I was also thinking that I do represent older people, as you know, but mm. just out of justice, I've really been thinking of the sons and daughters of many of the people we're talking about, people who bought at the height of the boom, now families, huge mortgages. I mean, you know, it, it, it's. I wouldn't like to pitch one 
section of the population against another. There's there's a lot of need out there. Well, indeed, and it's time for a revaluation of uh, the local property tax, as it's known, uh, which was introduced in 2013. But yes. since then, of course, house prices have been rising. So, yes. uh, I mean, we're looking at the prospect of paying a lot more because properties are of a greater value. Exactly, and from what I have read, Michael, they're talking about giving more flexibility to local councils, which could turn into a postcode lottery, it seems to me, Mm. and it could lead to great inequity that people in different places are paying very, very different amounts. Well, I think that's already been the case, has it not, in that there is some flexibility of around 15% up or down in terms of what's been asked of people up to now, and some councils have left it unchanged. Uh, I don't think any of them have increased it, have they? Uh, I don't think so, but again, they're saying that councils who have kind of fat coffers mightn't levy so much. Do you know what I mean? It's Mm. There's a lot to it. And I know you and I have talked about the fact that in terms of older people, and I will talk about older people Mm. for the moment, a lot of older people are asset rich but cash poor and they are living in bigger homes and they are, you know, paying perhaps a disproportionate amount of tax. And you could say, again, that brings up the thing like, why don't older people downsize? But I've had recent experience of somebody um, moving house and it's a huge, complicated uh, arrangement, it seems to me. It, there's an awful lot to it. And if you're an older person on your own with that family support, it's an extremely daunting thing to be approaching or facing. So it's easily said, but much more difficult to execute. Mm, so you uh, may have a, a house that's worth a, a lot of money mm. and uh, not be able to afford to turn on the heating, perhaps. Well, you know, the, 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 the very sad quote we had years ago from a caller, and we still think of it in senior line, she told one of my colleagues, we either eat, I either eat or heat. Mm. So that, that, that is the real issue. And some people coming into winter now, they tell us, you know, they they live in downstairs or they live in one room. Or the, I mean, you know, income lack of is a huge issue for older people. Where And as we know, when you're older, it costs more to be warm. You know, mm. it's harder to be warm. You know, there's, there's all kind of other issues when you're older. Mm. You can't just go down for a run down the road, do you know what I mean, and mm. generate your own energy. Now, there's a lot to this. Mm, of course. Uh, and uh, I suppose uh, one of uh, the things about a tax like this is uh, that it was introduced as an emergency measure. There were many criticisms of it at the time, especially in relation to people on fixed incomes, pensioners who didn't have uh, the ability to increase their income uh, because they were reliant on the pension and yeah. didn't have the opportunity to go out and get work or get an increase in their job, as the case may be. But like a, a lot of uh, emergency measures, whether that's the universal social charge or the local property tax, uh, they become part and parcel of how the government raises money uh, and it's half a billion euro that the government raises through this particular tax, uh, so it'll be very hard for them to give it up. Yes, exactly. Once it starts, you know, you know the other thing what starts as a, a privilege becomes a right. It's the opposite mm. of that. What starts as the emergency becomes the norm, doesn't it? Mm. Well, uh, one of uh, the norms or things uh, that appears uh, to have become commonplace in uh, this country is people waiting in hospital emergency departments. And I think people over the weekend would have been fairly shocked uh, to learn of a 92-year-old woman who was left sitting in a chair for 24 hours in the matter ED. Uh, it's not the first time we've heard of a story like this, uh, but the situation that Gladys Cummins found herself in uh, was pretty disgraceful, wasn't it? It was. It, it, it was very distressing to see that photograph, Michael, mm. of 
Gladys's daughter, Dee, uh, who had been talking about the situation, took the, I think, obviously, unprecedented step almost was taking this photograph of her mother sitting in A&E beside a door that kept opening and, you know, freezing her. And they had her wrapped up as well as possible. The mother went in. She's come. She was in a nursing home. There was a worry about um, a kidney infection that might lead to sepsis. It was leading to a bit of kind of paranoia and confusion on her part. So she was in a very bad way. And uh, they're, they're, her, the daughter and, and the Two daughters, they were, they were staying with her all the time, so distressed. And, and her daughter took the unprecedented step of taking the photograph because I think she felt that there's talk and talk and talk and nothing is happening. And I suppose when you're, you, you hear about things like this, when you're in the situation yourself, you probably are very, very taken back at how much worse it really is when you're there. Mm. And I think for a lot of us, it highlights some of the failings that collectively as a society we are responsible for and that surely we should be able to look after vulnerable people. And I think anybody who goes into their 90s is somebody who should expect a great standard of care, but we're far from it in this situation. Well, Yes, a few things about that. I mean, you know the way you hear that when somebody comes in, they're triaged mm. so, and, and decisions are made. I would have thought, again, I'm mm. just an outsider, a 92-year-old woman, as you say, in that particular situation, would need it and, and expect it and should should deserve some priority mm. in the situation. But in the newspaper report that I read, Michael, it said overwhelmed staff was, was the, the, the phrase that was used. And I think it's probably a very, very apt phrase. And whenever you hear somebody, a nurse or somebody from A&E talk about their, their work, it seems there's no doubt that they seem to care about the, the patients and they seem to be, they cannot do what they are expected to do. And I, I, I sometimes when I hear ministers, people talking about the, oh, you know, well, we're giving millions to this, millions to that, like it's, it's as if they're saying we're giving the millions we're giving money to the problem but why do they bother saying when it doesn't seem to make the problem any better it seems to be a, a, a complete contradiction to say we're spending money and the, 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 and the parenthesis is but we know it's not working I don't have an answer for that. Anne. No, uh, neither do I. That's why I'm bringing it up. <laughs> you know, it's 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 a very intractable problem. I understand. Mm. All right. Well, we'll hear from some of those overwhelmed staff uh, a little later in the program as well. But we'll Good. leave it there for the moment. And thank you indeed for joining us Thanks. as always. Anne Dempsey, communications manager with Third Age. Michael Reed on LMFM. The next political term and pre-budget debate will be dominated once again by the housing crisis. Last week, trade unions, political parties, students, unions, housing agencies and community and campaign groups joined forces under the umbrella name of the Raise the Roof campaign, which will see a rally take place outside of Leinster House on Wednesday, the 3rd of October to coincide with an opposition party motion on housing. And we're joined by MacDara Doyle, spokesperson with the Irish Congress of Trade Unions, ICTU. Good morning, MacDara, and thanks for joining us here on the programme this morning. And uh, this particular motion would give people a constitutional right to housing. Well, the, the motion is, is agreed between a, a range of different parties. I think it's uh, Sinn Féin, Labour, Social Democrat, Greens, for profit solidarity and, and, and independence for change and I think we expect maybe one or two others 
Um, it's been agreed over the summer, and the motion is, I suppose, is effectively is, is their piece of work. But it reflects very much the broad policy uh, of the trade union movement, and it reflects the uh, policies and positions of a number of kind of the major housing groups and housing ages agencies and campaign groups. Uh, and we felt then it was an opportune time to, I suppose, join forces uh, in support of this because it is it is a, a very serious crisis we're facing, and this mm. probably. This presents, the, the, the motion I suppose presents a, a major opportunity for significant policy change in this area. The phrase housing crisis rolls fairly easy off uh, the tongue now because we've been in a crisis situation for a very long period of time. Such a, a crisis many would argue to be a national crisis at this stage but in ordinary times uh, would it be typical of a, a trade union to take a position on something like this? Well, I mean, we've been running our own campaign on housing now for oh, the last 12, 12 to 14 months, and we've we've started to work, we've been working closely with a range of other organisations, such as mm. the housing groups, such as campaign groups. I mean, we published our own Charter for Housing Rights last year, and we've been talking to all local TDs uh, about endorsing it. Well, sorry, all lo- local TDs in Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil, because the other parties already came out and supported it. Mm. Um, Sorry, I, what, what I mean actually, McDara, is that, yes. that that's the position you're taking in this extraordinary situation, uh, but in ordinary times where you wouldn't expect a, a crisis of this level in relation to something as fundamental to life, such as housing, to take yes. place, it would seem very unusual for a trade union well, to... Yeah, no, I was, I was, I was just getting mm-hmm. to that because the, the, reason, the reason we began the campaign on the uh, uh, in relation to housing is that over the last uh, period of time, housing has d- displaced, I suppose, every other item on the agenda in terms of our members' concerns and interests and worries and fears. And all the affiliated trade unions will tell you that union meetings all around the country, or, that there are communications with, with, with their own trade unions and their mm. own members. Housing has pushed its way right up the agenda. Because if you're getting a pay rise of, you know, in, 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 Utop- in Utopia, if you're getting a pay rise of 5, 10, 15 percent, it's no good if your rent has gone up 20, 25 percent, or the house that you that the house that you thought you might be able to afford have quadrupled in price in the in the last year or two, and you're being forced to look further and further and further afield um, with increased commuting costs, etc. All of those issues. So it's impacting across every range. Mm. And every sector of society. You also have parents then who are being dragged into this in the sense that kids who can't leave home, who can't afford to leave home, who can't get out of the house, people who are forced to move back home, living in overcrowded accommodation. I mean, we had a launch of this initiative on Thursday, uh, last Thursday in, uh, here in Dublin, and it, Peter McVerry was one of the speakers. He's one of the supporters of this. And he's, he says his own estimate, his own estimate from his years of experience working in this area, is that there are probably about a couple of hundred thousand actually affected by the housing crisis in one way or another. Mm. Uh, and instead of that figure of just under 10,000 who are officially homeless, he's saying mm. the rea- real figure is 15,000. Uh, yes. But uh, yes. the point you make there is, uh, I suppose, the point that I was coming to, because trade unions, ordinarily speaking, would represent people who are working, and you'd expect people who are working uh, to be able to uh, afford mm-hmm. to pay a mortgage or pay their rent but given the extent of the crisis it has now become an issue for trade unions absolutely as i said it's become because it's become a cost of living issue it's become a standard of living issue if you can't afford or if your if your rent is excessively high that impacts on on your standard of living in terms of the money you have to spend elsewhere 
uh, on other services in terms of raising your family. If you're, if you're for God's sake, a, a family with young kids and are paying high rent plus childcare costs, I mean, it's becoming, it's becoming untenable um, in terms of the, 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 the whole issue of affordability. Um, and the, the issue is that the government has to start taking a much more active role. I mean, we built... We're not building houses is, is, is the big problem. We're, we're certainly not building public and social and affordable housing. There's houses being built at the moment around the country, but they're being built for the higher end of the market. Um, and that only suits a very, very small proportion of the population. The Irish Congress of Trade Unions is a fairly powerful entity. What pressure can you bring to bear? Well, I mean, we've, we've talked to employers about this because employers, in fairness to them, in, in some respects, are feeling the pinch in the same way because they have, they have people, A, if they're trying to attract people in to work in this country, um, you have a major issue because people look at the rents and look at the affordability uh, of purchasing a house and say, forget it, I'll go elsewhere. Mm. I mean, I read a story over the summer of, of two IT workers, well-paid, um, in very good jobs, who left Ireland to go and live in Geneva because mm. the housing costs were half, half uh, what they were here. Mm. Uh, and they could no longer afford to actually sustain a decent lifestyle in Ireland or in, in Dublin where they were working. So they gave up good jobs here to go to other jobs abroad. And now that's long-term going to have a very serious impact on our economy, um, and particularly when you look at the likes of Brexit coming down the line, and, you know, the, 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 the I suppose, drive to bring people here, uh, or for, for firms to relocate here, um, that's not going to happen if, if people simply can't afford to find somewhere to live. Um, so... Uh, that, as I say, is, is, I suppose, the impetus behind the initiative and the mm-hmm. impetus behind why trade unions are involved. It has become a cost-of-living issue. It has become an issue for people who are in work, who would normally, in, the normal, in, in normal times, people in, in work, particularly, say, a two-income family, would be able to get themselves onto the property ladder, would be able to get themselves somewhere decent to rent if they, if they wanted to. Not everybody wants a mortgage. Not, not everybody needs a mortgage. But even when you go into the rental sector, you're faced with really insecure accommodation because tenants have very poor rights in this country in comparison to most other sector, uh, most other countries. And you're faced then with escalating and uh, utterly un- unaffordable rents. Mm. But isn't it odd uh, that almost everybody, even government representatives, are, are, are saying the same thing? They're certainly talking uh, about uh, the supply and demand being the fundamental problem and perhaps the solutions are nuanced, uh, but pretty much in line with each other. Having said that, uh, we've uh, all of the opposition parties very critical of the government's failure to deliver on the promises that it has been making. Uh, and uh, we've Michal Martin writing today about uh, the cynical and depressing attitude taken by the Minister and the Taoiseach in relation to this. Uh, But it it seems as though this motion uh, will fail. Uh, It it seems as though Sinn Féin, uh, who are sponsoring this motion, it's a people before profit motion, as I understand it, uh, could have tabled this motion at a time when the political mood was somewhat different and may have brought an end to this administration. Uh, well, look, I'm mm. not sure if you're, if you're talking about the motion of no confidence or if you're talking about the housing motion. There's two separate motions there. Uh, the motion of no confidence uh, in Owen Murphy, I think, which has been going to be tabled by Sinn Féin, that's, that's, a, that's a matter for them. That's, not between, that, that, that's nothing to do with us at all. Uh, we're talking about the housing motion that mm. is going to be tabled on October 3rd. And I, uh, I, the, there are discussions ongoing, uh, as far as I'm aware. All we're saying is that what's in that motion represents, if it was passed, 
would represent very significant and the kind of significant policy change that we would need to see happening in order to start tackling the housing and homelessness crisis in the short term, in the medium term and over the longer term because fundamentally what we need to do in this country is change our relationship with, with property and with housing. We need to give people far more rights. We need to rebalance uh, the equation and give people far more rights in terms of the properties that they're in, in terms of secure accommodation, in terms of decent standards of accommodation um, and, and also obviously uh, make housing more affordable I mean, and stop treating mm. it as an investment commodity for, commodity for speculators. Uh, and do you expect a, a sizable turnout to protest on a, a Wednesday afternoon? Well, look, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a lunchtime rally. Mm. We haven't called a national demonstration. It's a lunchtime rally outside Leinster House just to show our support. But I think the most encouraging thing about it is that we're part of a coalition of groups that is, I think, almost unprecedented. Uh, in, in, in terms of wider Irish society. I mean, you've got housing and homeless agencies like, you know, the, the major, the McMurray Mac, mm. Trust, the Focus, Simon, etc., etc. You've got a range of political parties. You've got a range of community groups. You've got trade unions. I think this is... An, you've got organisations like the National Women's Council of Ireland. This is, I think, almost unprecedented. Uh, and I think it shows the pressure that people are feeling across all sectors of society. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment and thank you indeed, as always, for joining us today. MacDara Doyle, spokesperson for the Irish Congress of Trade Unions. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael. Welcome back. Um, John in Navin was listening in to your interview at the top of the show with Deputy Thomas Byrne and he thought it was the most hypocritical interview he'd ever heard. He says that it's blatantly obvious to anyone with an interest in politics that Fianna Fáil have been consumed in with Fine Gael, as he puts it, and no longer exists as a party. The voter is going to have some choice to make at the next election because they won't know who to vote for. It'll probably be down to a right vote. They'll either vote Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil together or the parties on the left says John from Navin. Uh, another listener says Tom was in touch and says Thomas Byrne and Fianna Fáil are right. They need to do the right thing by keeping stability in this country. There are too many important issues like Brexit for the country to go to the polls at the moment. Mm, OK, I suppose you could argue that's what Fine Gael is saying and they're saying that they need the stability uh, by having uh, the agreement renewed uh, and if it's not renewed then there won't be that stability. Jim from Dundalk says the problem he sees for Fianna Fáil is that Leo Varadkar always seems to be calling the shots and they seem to be like sheep to him. The Fianna Fáil party is losing its own identity just to keep Fine Gael in government. I just don't understand it, says Jim, and I think that Fianna Fáil is going to suffer big time because of it. Okay. Seamus, um, um, also from Dundalk, says that Leo Varadkar is all about his image and all about spin, but the mainstream media just seem to love him, he mm. says. However, he feels that the Taoiseach and his cabinet should be more concerned about getting the job done and tackling housing and the hospital crisis. Okay, well, I'm sure they'll tell us there's a lot of focus on it. 
on the on the hospital situation mm-hmm. and the, the nurses, uh, we had a text in from Brendan in Dundalk and he says that the nurses do a great job under very difficult situation. Our population is ageing and each winter many elderly people are admitted to hospitals with chest problems and falls. There is not an emergency plan put in place for the winter periods. Nurses are stretched in the wards. The ratio of nurses to patient Brendan Fields should be decreased and Irish trained nurses should be encouraged to stay in Ireland what with better terms and conditions. He feels that it should be mandatory that when a nurse trains here in Ireland, Michael, that she has to work in a hospital under contract for two years. After all, the state trains them and they get the hospitality of training and he feels that that should be a given, that they're made to stay here at least, and to give them a good starting rate of pay and a package that they will then consider stay staying on in Ireland. Okay. So that's his thoughts on it. All right, well, we'll be talking to uh, the Nurses' Organisation a, a little bit later in the programme, but let's speak to local Fianna Fáil councillor Tommy Byrne now, who uh, wants uh, people to join with them for a public meeting uh, to discuss the Northern Cross route. Uh, that's uh, something that we have haven't heard mentioned in some time and is uh, and has been off the agenda for some stage. Absolutely, Michael, and thank you for inviting me on, on the programme here. If the will is there, a time frame of five years is achievable for completion, down from the expected ten. Mm, but you need the money as well as the will, and the money isn't there. Well, I mean, this has already been decided. It's off the agenda, isn't it? Well, the, the situation there, like we need a commitment from the stakeholders, the government, Drogheda Port Company, and Irish Cement Limited to fast-track the road. Mm. On Merit, the Drogheda Northern Cross Route deserves to be up there on the top of the government list. Of yeah, but what do you mean the fast track? It, it's off the agenda, isn't it? it it's, well, that's why we're meeting public, mm. uh, public meeting tonight. Mm. The fourth, well, the to, put, to, 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 to start it, to, to start the process again, is yeah, it? Because I mean, see, the situation in the streets of the town are a nightmare scenario. Mm. The five-year completion would give some little comfort to long-suffering residents living on the port route. Mm. The nightmare scenario for residents living on the narrow Platten Road. Mary Street is a perfect example. Mm. Their quality of life is diminished with the pounding of heavy lorries day and night. In fact, all of the residential streets on the current route are affected. But the, the residents don't have any hope of uh, the Northern Cross route. I, I mean, the government set out its spending plan for the next 10 years or, or so, and there's no inclusion of this road. Well, absolutely. The Dota Port access does not appear to be a priority for government. The crucial missing link for the town to grow and to reach its full potential. The employment generated loan would be awesome with the building of affordable social homes, mm. light industrial... But do you accept it's not going to happen, Tommy, do you? Oh, it definitely will. It's going to be on, on the list because we cannot... But it's not on the list. I mean, that's we, what I've been saying to you throughout the last not, few no, minutes when you've been reading off that page. To, to, to the height of the list mm. because uh, sporting clubs are crying out for... Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. Which are most impressive in the plans. No, I know, but uh, and I mean, if I could take you off the page uh, for a moment, uh, because you, you, you know there is no funding available for it. But you see, you're only talking about 10 million. I'm asking that the, mm. the, the, the stakeholders fund it and then take the money of the levies coming in. For example, there, you know, there's uh, thousands of homes there. The housing crisis, mm. industry, sporting clubs, the traffic going through the town to make mm. a beautiful town to take the lorries off it. And the scenario there on the, uh, on the, month, on the 1st of May there on the Platten Road was, was deplorable. Mm. They did now do a good job since, but the people cannot put up with this. Okay. We've got to do something, and I think it'll be an, inter- an interesting. So, what, 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 what do you want? Uh, I mean, do you, do you, do, do you want? Do you, do you want? The, well, that's what I mean. You want the government to scrap yeah. it, its spending plans for not the to, next? Not scrap. I want to put it up on the list. I get the, they didn't speak to the stakeholders. It's men limited. There are plenty of money. So, have the port company and uh, the government. It's only talking ten million. You get the money back of the you know of the developers on the levies. So, put it to any country in the country in, in mm. the world with the road enforced. It's nonsensical what they're doing. It'll never happen. What's going to happen down at the uh, at the twenties there, mm. the junction there with the, the, the Wimble Ra- Road, with houses coming in there? How are they going to win? Okay, you but cannot, you, you make valid points, no doubt. Uh, but uh, I would think uh, you've got your work cut out for you. But you're asking people to meet with you uh, this evening in Barlow House. Well, I, uh, uh, transport spokesperson Robert Try will be a guest speaker, and I think that this will be a very interesting meeting tonight. And hopefully that it will highlight the lack of action on the Northern Crossing, which is crying out. The people are really mm. suffering, you okay. know, living on those streets. All right, that's quality of life is diminished. Eight o'clock this evening. Eight o'clock tonight. I'm very grateful, Michael. Thank All you right. very much. Thank you very much indeed. Fianna Fáil Councillor Tommy Burns, he says, uh, Robert Troy, uh, the Fianna Fáil, uh, spokesperson on transport uh, will be attending that meeting in Barlow House. Now let's go back uh, to some more of your thoughts and some of uh, the calls that have been coming to us uh, through the morning. Marie, what else have you got for us? Just going back to the hospital situation, Eileen from Navin phoned us and she says it was very tough. She was agreeing with your guest Anne, seeing the picture of that 92-year-old sitting on the chair in the hospital waiting to be seen. But she fears that we're going to be seeing more 
pictures like that over the coming months when we hear that there is no emergency plan in place in our hospitals for the winter. And she just wonders, Michael, why is this? That every year we all know, she says, that in the winter the demand on our hospitals increases. And it's not like this comes as unexpected news. So she doesn't know why it's not planned for and that steps are taken to ensure all is in order to cope with the demand. And she feels that it's heartbreaking, is the word she is, what patients are having to endure in our hospitals because of what she's, she sees as a lack of investment. She says that nurses are not applying for jobs in our hospitals for the reason that they are not being paid in accordance to the job that they are doing. Okay. That's her thoughts on it. Strong words there. Uh, the government says Anne, who texts in, would want to raise the old age pension by €10 Euro per week. Anne says that the ESB has gone up and so too has fuel. And she worries that we're taking in too many foreign nationals. She says that our hospitals cannot cope with the huge number of patients needing attention and we don't have enough housing in the country. Okay. So that's her thoughts on it. Uh, another listener was in touch regarding the hospital uh, to say that on any given week there are always people waiting in A&E for long for a long time to be seen. It could be hours on end. And this listener says that that the picture of the woman is just reflective of what is going on day in, day out, mm. week in, week out. Yeah, well, I mean, it's not just hours on end, it's sometimes days on end, two, three days, yes. possibly even more on end. Uh, the ironic thing, uh, I think, in relation to this is that uh, one of uh, the most infamous hospitals in the country was Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital, uh, which had some of the worst waiting times, and now tops uh, the list in terms of uh, the shortest time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, one of uh, the better performing hospitals in the country, so it shows that these things can be turned around. Okay, another Peter Inton dog feels that the big parties don't care about the people. The many homeless people, the hospital waiting lists, the high taxes and everything. The list just goes on and on, says Peter. And he feels it looks like looks like looks like there are higher bodies pulling the strings. Uh, Irish people, he feels now, they are very greedy. So that's his thoughts on it. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and I think he's referring to the people at the top, not the uh, ordinary okay, people. Right, okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, another listener was in touch and says about the property tax that it is concerning that the property tax can could be increased because the cost of housing is increasing and that people need to know where they stand. Mm, well, I think uh, they will before the election or else uh, the election will be uh, a very interesting uh, battle for the parties responsible for those increases if there are yes. to be increases. All right, uh, we finish on that. We'll leave it there for the moment. Thanks uh, for that, Marie, and thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 1850 Marie and Maggie are taking calls this morning on that number, as they say, 1857 or you can text us on 086 1800 658.
Well, as you've been hearing uh, that uh, people before profit a motion on housing which would give people a constitutional right to housing will have uh, the support of Sinn Féin. Separately, Sinn Féin is uh, to table a motion of no confidence in Owen Murphy as uh, the Minister for Housing and Owen O'Brien, Sinn Féin TD for Dublin Midwest and Sinn Féin spokesperson on housing joins us now. And a very good morning to you. This is a motion that has been a long time in the coming, hasn't it? Well, we started considering the motion really around June um, and obviously we were assessing the Minister's record and whether or not he was delivering on a, on a range of issues, both social and affordable housing as well as the homelessness crisis. I suppose events over the, the summer, particularly July and August, took a very negative turn. Uh, you saw those, I suppose, very troubling images of Martha Cash and her children sleeping on a guard station. We saw a significant increase in the number of families presenting as homeless. Uh, and we also saw... Uh, uh, real difficulties in terms of rising house prices and rents. So as a consequence of all of that, we've taken the decision that we're going to table the motion uh, in the 25th of September. Uh, Because of how the crisis escalated over the summer? Yeah, I mean, I suppose when when Owen Murphy took office uh, as minister, I I spoke on the floor of the doll and I said two things. I said that, look, I wanted him to succeed. Um, I don't want to play party politics with the housing crisis. What I want is government to deliver the homes that people so desperately need. But what I also said is we would judge him on his record and we would hold him to account. And I think really it became clear mm. after about 12 months in office that not only is the policy failing, and it's very clear in almost every indicator that the policy is failing, but also crucially, uh, Owen Murphy just doesn't seem to understand. So, you know, his responsibility now is to go into cabinet and say to his government colleagues, folks, this isn't working, we need to change approach. Instead, what is he doing? He, he's coming out day after day defending a failing policy. And for me, probably one of the most telling things that happened over the summer is it took the minister four full weeks before he responded personally and directly to the issue of Margaret Cash and her children sleeping on guard stations. And she's the only publicly known uh, case in terms mm, of... Uh, but there's hundreds. I mean, there's having, about 100 families that find themselves in that situation every month, is there not? So in that sense, I suppose... The time is up. The time is up both on rebuilding Ireland as a policy. That's the core problem that we want to force a change on. But the time is also up on Murphy. And but you said the time was up, uh, but you wanted the abortion referendum to be passed first. Yeah, well, first, well, first of all, when we first discussed the, the motion, uh, the issue obviously was what else was going on in the doll calendar. We also had, for example, private members' time in July. We had one motion, uh, and we had to consider whether the, the hospital waiting list crisis, 700,000 people in hospital waiting list, or the housing crisis took precedence, and we took the decision at that point mm. to focus on the hospital crisis. And part of the difficulty with this government is is because there are so many things going wrong in so many areas. We have a, a limited amount of private members' time where you can table motions of various kinds, and, and obviously you have to make those decisions. But we also made very clear when in July we decided to focus on the hospital waiting lists that we would be returning to the issue of Owen Murphy, his record, his failure to deliver and his continued support for a policy rebuilding Ireland that at this stage clearly isn't working. Okay, well, I suppose that's politics, isn't it? Well, in in some senses, it's not politics. Mm, Well, it is politics. You've been playing politics with it, in other words, have you not? I I, I absolutely don't accept that. Mm. Look look at what's happening. Uh, Under uh, Owen Murphy's watch, homelessness has increased about 35%, Mm. both child and pensioner homelessness. Yeah, but last June you could have brought down the government. Uh, It's thought now that uh, your motion will fail. 
Well, first of all, Fianna Fáil said last June that they wouldn't support our motion. Micheál Martin made that very clear, and he's saying the same thing now. So the real issue, of course, is why is it that Micheál Martin is willing to allow Owen Murphy and the failed Rebuilding Ireland policy uh, to continue in place? You know, on the one hand, Fianna Fáil are telling us uh, uh, that uh, Fine Gael aren't delivering, mm. yet Fine Gael are doing exactly what they said they would do in their budget. The budget was Fianna Fáil uh, supported. And mm. there is quite a lot of anger in the backbenches of Fianna Fáil that they're willing to allow this housing crisis to continue by effectively supporting Owen Murphy when the motion comes up. So, oh, I know, but you had, been... you had the momentum uh, and you decided not to take it for political reasons because you wanted the referendum to pass. No, because we had a private member's motion after the referendum. Yes, and you decided not we, to table the motion of confidence. We, we, we rightly, in my view, at that point, took the decision to focus on the hospital crisis uh, and we said we returned to housing and we've done so. But also be very clear, Micheál Martin told us in June, July and again in September he's going to stand by Owen Murphy. He's going to stand by Leo Varadkar and he's going to stand over. Homeless levels continue to increase, rents continue to increase, house prices continue mm. to increase, student accommodation increasingly unaffordable. Now, if that's what Fianna Fáil stands for, that's something they have to explain to the public. What we are saying is we no longer have confidence in this minister. We want to see uh, rebuilding Ireland scrapped and new housing policy put in place. And that's why we're tabling the motion. And I think most okay. people think we're doing the right thing. But if we were to believe the minister, it would seem as though Sinn Féin is part of uh, the problem. Uh, as we've been hearing, uh, the minister uh, is uh, to set targets uh, for local uh, authorities or to take control of uh, the process himself. That is, the department would take control uh, of uh, the housing targets and see that they're implemented because the councils are led predominantly by Sinn Féin. And I have to say, what you've seen in the last week is Fine Gael, and particularly Owen Murphy and Leo Varadkar, increasingly desperate to deflect blame on other people. So the first thing they did is they attacked the council. Owen Murphy started by attacking them for failing to provide adequate emergency accommodation, and then the following morning, Leo Varadkar attacked them for failure to provide social and affordable housing. And the following day, uh, Leo Varadkar attacked Sinn Féin, uh, uh, and we do lead two councils in South Dublin and Dublin City uh, for the alleged failure to deliver. Two things. The targets that councils have for social and affordable housing are set by the department. The funding allocations are set by central government. And in fact, in South Dublin and in Dublin City, and I'm a, a former member of South Dublin County Council, it is thanks to Sinn Féin and others on the progressive left who've ensured that not only have we delivered the targets that have been set by government, but we've pushed the targets even further. For example, here in my own area, we have a major, major piece of development land, public and private, called the Clumborough Strategic Development Zone. We wanted to ensure that all of the public land on that site would be used uh, half for social housing and half for genuinely affordable housing for working families not eligible for social housing. That would be about a 3,000 extra units on top of the government's plan. We got that through, but against huge opposition from who? Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael uh, councillors. Uh, and their TDs in this constituency didn't say very much about it either. So in fact, in those two local authorities, in South Dublin and Dublin City, if it wasn't for Sinn Féin and the other progressives in, in political parties, we would have less social housing and less targets. And Leo Varadkar knows this. So again, what you're seeing is government is underfunding councils. Uh, government uh, has set targets far too low for social housing. Zero targets have been set for affordable. And the councillors of the government parties uh, on some of our councillors uh, are the ones who are trying to block, thankfully unsuccessfully, housing for people who need it, working families for affordable housing and social housing for families that need that as well. And what about these targets uh, that uh, the department is setting for the councils now? Uh, Pat Leahy is reporting in the Irish Times uh, that South Dublin 
County Council has been instructed to provide an additional 300 hubs or hubs to accommodate 300 families. Uh, it's the same in Fingal, uh, Dublin City and Dunleary Rath Down, uh, enough for 50 families as well as 150 additional emergency beds. What do you make of those targets? Well, the first thing I would say is, is the government should put more energy into stopping those families from becoming homeless so that they need hubs in the first place. And there's a number of very, very clear ways in which they could do that. Uh, we've tabled legislation that was designed by Focus Ireland that would have kept many of the families who are currently being pushed into homelessness by buy-to-let landlords selling their properties vacant. Uh, it would have kept them in their homes. Equally, and I've said this on your show a number of times, we need to get families out of emergency accommodation more quickly. 1,800 vacant properties were offered to government to buy over the last two years. These would have been ideally suited for homeless families to get them out of emergency accommodation. Less than 400 have been built, or sorry, have been bought and even less tenanted. Now, it is true, we do need more emergency accommodation uh, and uh, we have no difficulty engaging with the minister to try and identify. In fact, here in Clondalkin Village, where, where I live and where I represent, we have gone to the department with a site that could provide family emergency accommodation. The problem, however, is, is the, the, the speed with which the department responds to such proposals and funds them is very, very slow. So what does all of this mean? It means Owen Murphy and Leo Varadkar are attacking council managers, mm. are attacking elected members to hide from their own failures. And what will be the consequence of that? It will further damage the relationship between the department and the local authorities. It will undermine the morale of hardworking local authority staff who are in many cases are on the front line of this homelessness crisis. And it's all about deflecting attention away from Fine Gael's failures and protecting Owen Murphy's skin. Mm. If he was serious about using emergency powers, why didn't he use them a year ago to get houses built? Because they're underfunding the delivery of social housing and in fact they're not funding affordable housing at all, which is why not a single affordable home to rent or buy for working families was delivered last year by central government, will be delivered this year by central mm. government, and it's likely none will be li- delivered next year either. All of those are the reasons why Murphy has to go and rebuilding Ireland has to go. Uh, and if you're right uh, about this uh, approach uh, that has been taken uh, to take over uh, the responsibility from uh, the councils by the department, it is cynical and depressing in equal amounts, or at least that's the view of Michal Martin. And then that comes back to Fianna Fáil's position on all of this and what you were saying earlier on as to whether they will continue to support through abstaining on the vote or what will they do. But undoubtedly, there'll be pressure on Fianna Fáil in relation to this. Well, one of the things that bothers me about the, the approach to Fianna Fáil over the last two years is they facilitated the budgets of, uh, of Fine Gael by abstaining. The budget's, of course, key for housing because that determines how much money is being spent. In the run-up to both of those budgets, the 2018 and the 2017 budget, while Sinn Féin produced very detailed costed uh, housing alternatives, setting out what we want the government to do, Sinn Féin have never done that. And yet at the same time, despite the fact that they're facilitating this failed policy uh, and not putting forward any alternatives, they're criticising the government for what they see as its failures. Now, Fianna Fáil have been saying for a number of months they want Budget 2019 to be a housing budget. And my challenge to them is tell the people what that means. So for Sinn Féin, a housing budget would mean double capital investment in social and affordable housing from $1.1 billion to $2.3 billion. That can be done without raising additional taxes within the EU's fiscal rules. That would mean that instead of 7,000 public houses being delivered next year, 14,000 would be delivered. We're also calling for a range of emergency measures. And at the, at the start of your, your package there, you talked about a people before profit motion. That's a cross-party motion signed by about 40 deputies from Labour, Sinn Féin, people mm. before profit, solidarity, independence for change and others. 
And that's calling for a range of things to be introduced in the budget. Double capital investment, uh, take emergency measures to stop families becoming homeless, take emergency measures to reduce the cost of rent and enshrine the right to housing in the Constitution. And that motion, uh, which we've been working on together for some months, is now supported by the Irish Congress of Trade Unions, the Union of Students in Ireland, National Women's Council, Peter McFerry, Focus Ireland, Simon Communities, the National Housing and Homeless Coalition. And they will be calling, or have called, for a mobilisation outside the Dáil on the day of that private mm-hmm. member's motion to be debated, which will be 12.30 on October the 3rd. So what you can see is this growing consensus of people demanding change from the government. The only people in the opposition who haven't said what they want the government to actually do in terms of, of euros and cents is Fianna Fáil. And they need to tell people how many houses they think the government should build next year, how much money should be in the budget, and what, will they change their position uh, in relation to the emergency measures which are required, which so far they have refused to support in the Dáil, but they could support into the future. So I think Michal Martin uh, has a lot of explaining to do on this, and the time for the Fianna Fáil doublespeak, supporting the government one day, criticising them the next, has to come to an end. All right, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. On O'Brien is uh, Sinn Féin's spokesperson on housing. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, nurses are planning a series of lunchtime protests, uh, the first of uh, them today in Galway, Cork tomorrow and uh, Limerick tomorrow as well, because uh, they say the HSE doesn't have a plan to deal with extra patients this winter. Tony Fitzpatrick, Director of Industrial Relations with the Irish Nurses and Midwives Organisation, the INMO, is on the line. Uh, What do you mean when you talk about extra patients? Well, the reality is that we met with the HSE on, on Friday. We expected them to outline how they're going to deal with the influx of patients over the winter months. And the reason why we say that is that the data that the HSE have provided to us shows that year on year and month on month throughout this year, the number of attendances to emergency departments has increased. On top of that, the age profile of the patients presenting has also increased. So there's more over 65s, more over 75s presenting Mm. to emergency departments. So the trend is clear. The trend is showing that the number of people presenting is increasing. The number of people presenting are sicker and therefore will require admission to a hospital bed. And at the same time, we're now hearing reports from various community structures within the country uh, that they are cutting back on services because they've overspent their budget. So that will delay people getting out of hospital. So a combination of all of those factors would indicate that the number of people uh, on trolleys waiting for a hospital bed will increase into September, October, November, December, January and February. Because that's inevitable and the trend, as you say, with an ageing population is that there are more people in that situation than would have otherwise been the case. Does that mean then that we can expect the same type of overcrowding that we've seen for the last 10 years next year? We can expect it and it would be our expectation from talking to our members in emergency departments that it's going to be worse than any other year. Um, We have just come through the worst August on record. So that's a summer month and that would indicate and that's when the system is is our goal with regards to no budget curtailment measures, etc. We believe that because the acute hospitals protect their budget for the acute hospital and the community budgets are protected for the community, the two won't meet in between. And what will happen then is that they'll be protecting their own budgets and patients will fall between those two. Mm. And and the reality is from what we can see is that the situation is going to get worse heading into the winter months. And for example, the NHS announced its uh, accident and emergency uh, plan for the winter months on Friday. 
and um, when we met the HSE, all they could say to us on Friday was, "We are. We've, the HSE has drafted up plans. We're in discussions with the Department of Health with regards to funding those plans, and the Department of Health is in discussions with DPAR, Public Expenditure and Reform, with regards to funding those plans." So that's not good enough when we're in September heading into the winter. If they're real about these plans, and, and hospital groups and CHOs would have been preparing these plans back in April and May, if they're serious about it, they should have the plan signed off now, they should have it announced, and it should be moving to implement it. Because mm-hmm. say, for example, one measure is additional home care packages, or maybe a measure is additional bed capacity. Well, that requires staff to open up those beds. There's a lead-in time to that, and those services need to know whether they're approved or not so that they can move forward and plan for the influx which is coming. Okay, and when you talk about it being the most overcrowded August on record, uh, it's probably true to say as well that it was uh, the most overcrowded summer on record. Uh, but uh, it's also possibly been the least overcrowded 12 months on record in Drogheda. Yes. And this is a point that we've made to the HSE as well, that there is something wrong within the system. Um, There are hospitals that have shown significant improvement when they've got an operational grip, to use that term, so that they're running as effectively and efficiently as they possibly can. And there's no doubt that that Drogheda has seen significant improvements with regards to the numbers on trolleys. They have single figures this morning, for example, while at the same time there's over 400 people on trolleys throughout the country. Um, There are particular hospitals that, that seem to be continuously in escalation. I think it's important Mm. that I highlight this. When a hospital is in escalation, that means they've invoked their full capacity protocol. That means their emergency department is completely overcrowded. But as well as that, in particular hospitals, they've put extra trolleys up on inpatient wards. So the entire hospital is overcrowded. CUH, sorry, Cork University Mm. Hospital, Limerick, Galway, they're particular sites that seem to be always in escalation. The key thing for us is that when when your numbers are increasing, it's early intervention. And it's clear that in Drogheda and Beaumont Mm. as well, they have intervened early before they get to the 20-something or 30-something on trolleys. When they're at 8, 9, etc., they're doing what's necessary to try and move patients out of the emergency department and indeed move patients out of inpatient beds. And you don't need to be a rocket scientist to work out the solution in the other hospitals. Uh, I mean, follow the example that is obviously working in Drogheda and in Ballmount. I mean, I don't know how many times over the years, Tony, you were on the line to us from Drogheda telling us that there were 50 people on trolleys and they were in the corridors and up on escalation wards and all this sort of thing. And here now we have a, a different situation. In fact, I think I saw Leo Vradker on the telly not so long ago saying that other hospitals would have to follow the lead that has been shown by Drogheda. You're right, I've seen that and i actually seen pictures of Ian Carter, the CEO, with Leo Vradker and Simon Harris where they had discussions with regards to what they've done. So there's, there's little doubt um, that uh, what they've done in Drogheda has greatly improved the situ- situation. I think uh, if you want to look at it, a set of dominoes, so we have GPs that are, that are flat out and the service is full. We have another domino that's full emergency departments. We have another domino that's full wards. We have another domino that's staffing shortages and cancelled elective procedures, etc. And if those dominoes are all standing beside each other, what the winter does is basically pushes one of them and that makes the whole lot of them fall over. Yeah. And, and that's 
the crisis that the health service is facing. The reality is that they, you know they should have had their plans in place. And another important point is this: hospitals cannot function normally if their bed capacity or bed occupancy is above 85%. As it stands now, the majority of hospitals are over 95%. The average is probably 98% bed occupancy. And some of them are running at 110% bed occupancy. And what that means is that if there's any crisis in the system, then it just goes down to, to meltdown. And what we need is we have counter care, we have the bed capacity report, uh, they all say we need additional bed capacity, we need to move to a newer community-centric model of care. Mm. While we're doing all of that, um, we, we need to realise we won't have the bed capacity unless we attract more nurses into the system and other frontline staff. Um, and the issue with regards to slanted care is that already the community structures are pulling back on their budgets because they're overspent. So the difficulty for us, and I think what we're calling on the minister, the government and the HSC to do is to be completely honest with the public. We have come to September, they're overstretched, they're unable to, to cope. They need to start telling the public now the winter is going to be bad. We have a plan which they haven't set out yet because they haven't, they're still in discussions between several departments about it. Set out what that plan is and be honest with the public about what the reality is. Because we know beds are closed already within the system because of a shortage of nurses and midwives. So there's an array of issues that they need to tackle. Um, but the most important message we believe at this stage is that they need to be honest with the public. Okay, uh, and they also need to find money uh, because quite often that is uh, the problem, isn't it? Uh, and when you talk about Slauncher Care, you're talking about raising uh, four or five billion euro over a, a number of years, and it's a question of how to go about funding that. Absolutely, and I think some of the things is that that there needs to be funding obviously put in. We would advise that the, the funding needs to be targeted. It needs to be ring-fenced and set in for specific measures, etc. Um, rather than just, you know, we give you an extra 100 million, whatever it is, mm. it actually needs to be set out. This is the projects we want to be done that will alleviate the problem. We can put in loads of different measures that may alleviate the level of overcrowding, may divert patients to more appropriate services, etc. But at the moment, because community care is short-staffed and overstretched, the GP services are overstretched as mm. they currently, you know, we had the the under sixes initiative, they're talking about expanding free care to GPs to other services. Well, that that will have an impact. But all um, of this is well intentioned, isn't it? Uh, you know, yeah. but there's no plan until you decide how you're going to pay for it. And, you know, there's various options. You can make everybody take out private health insurance or you can increase taxes. And and the reality is this, that, that, that they have a plan, which is to care, which is going to be a public uh, provision of community services, etc. Well, then let's let's set out what the budget is. But it needs to be front loaded in order to allow it to have an immediate impact. Um, I think the big big concern for our members on the front line that are currently working in overcrowded emergency departments and on overcrowded wards is that they want to be able to deliver safe care to patients. And what they're clearly saying to us at the moment is nearly impossible to deliver safe care all of the time because of the level of overcrowding and the level of shortages. As it stands now, there's 2,000 less nurses in the health system than there was in 2007 before the crisis came. There are hundreds of, they're, they're the funded posts, there are hundreds of, hundreds of those funded posts 
vacant across the country because of the difficulty recruiting and retaining uh, nurses. That's going to lead to more bed closures. There's going to be curtailment within the community due to budget curtailment. So we need to stop you know, talking about a winter plan or whatever. They need to have a plan for the full year um, of how they're going to address uh, the crisis as it currently exists. And I think in the budget and as part of the confidence supply agreement, they need to set out a plan that will alleviate uh, these problems to ensure that the health service can respond to the health needs of the population. Okay, well, we'll watch that space, as they say. In the meanwhile, your members will be protesting outside of a a number of hospitals over the next couple of days, uh, and uh, we'll hear uh, what uh, action will be taken uh, from the HSE and, indeed, uh, through the budget announcements in the coming days and weeks. But for the moment, thank you, Tony Fitzpatrick, Director of Industrial Relations with the INMO, the Irish Nurses and Midwives Organisation. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the Irish Cancer Society is uh, calling on on the government uh, to extend uh, the HPV vaccine to boys at a cost of 10.4 million euro. It's estimated Avril Powers, Chief Executive Officer of uh, the Irish Cancer Society and uh, joins us now. Thanks for doing that. Uh, But there's been a poor uptake of uh, the vaccine with girls. Uh, Is it worthwhile at this stage extending it to boys? Morning, Michael. Um, It's actually increasing for girls, um, which is a very positive thing. The uptake had dropped um, from over 80% down to 51%, but last year it um, went over 60% again, and we're expecting it to increase this year, particularly in light, Michael, um, of people becoming more aware of the impact of cervical cancer um, and the horrific toll that it takes on women and their families. Mm, absolutely. Uh, and uh, the campaign uh, against it was because of side uh, effects that people perceived uh, to be very problematic. Uh, all of that has been contested. Uh, and uh, I think... Well, all of that has, all of that has been proven. Um, yeah. So um, over 200 million doses of the vaccine have been given worldwide um, since it was first introduced in Australia over 10 years ago in 2007. Um, it's been extensively tested um, and is endorsed by the World Health Organization, the European Medicines Agency, ourselves in the Irish Cancer Society. There's never been any medical evidence to um, tie it to the side effects that were alleged. There are illnesses that occur um, in adolescent girls around the time that they're getting the vaccine, but those illnesses have the same rate of occurrence um, in girls who have and have not been vaccinated, so there's no association has ever been proven between the two. Whereas on the other hand, the HPV vaccine has been shown to be a safe and effective way of eliminating um, cervical cancer in mm. girls and also other cancers in boys like penile and anal cancer in boys. And it, it seems as though it may be eradicated uh, because of the success of the HPV vaccine in Australia. Absolutely. So as I said, we've 10 years now of evidence of the vaccine being used in Australia. There's been a massive decrease in HPV infection, lower and lower rates now as girls come into their um, mid-20s of um, pre-cancers that would be indicative of, of cervical cancer. So this is really quite an incredible vaccine. It's you know one, the first time that we've had a vaccine that mm. can eliminate a form of cancer. And that's why it's so important that parents ensure as their girls are going back to school, um, in September, ensure that the girls get this free vaccination and make sure that they're protected against the horrors of cervical cancer. Um, and that's also why we're campaigning to ensure that from next year, boys have the same protection. There are over 20 countries now um, in the world committed to vaccinating boys and girls, including um, England 
and Scotland, which have announced it just over the summer. And we want to make sure that Irish boys get the same protection as girls. And we're going to be talking a, a lot about cervical cancer, I think, over the coming week and coming weeks, no doubt, uh, because of the publication of uh, the Scally report, presuming it goes ahead. It was given to the Minister, Simon Harris, on Friday. Uh, and we'll go to the Cabinet if it's approved by the Attorney General, but uh, maybe seen by the women affected beforehand. But it's the effect on the women that really is the story that has shocked an awful lot of people and how serious a cancer, cervical cancer, can be. And the idea of eradicating it, as has been the case in Australia, certainly makes the case, as you have been for us here this morning, uh, in administering it uh, to young girls. Uh, uh, But it's a different type of cancer, obviously, that boys are at risk of. Is the potential success uh, the same, do you think? It is. So um, each year up to 100 women and 30 men die from cancers caused by HPV. So your listeners will be aware that cervical cancer would be the main one in women, but many people wouldn't realise that HPV also causes penile cancer, anal cancer, rectal cancer, and indeed head and neck cancer in men as well. Um, Boys are currently given other injections at the same time as the girls get the HPV vaccine, so they get tetanus diphtheria and meningitis vaccinations around this time of year and we're calling for the HPV one to be given at the same time because it is just as effective in boys as in girls. And if it it was to be that uh, effective, uh, how would the cost of administering the vaccine compare to the cost of treating the cancers? Well, the cost would be €2 million a year um, to vaccinate all boys but the savings for the health service would be immense. Um, HPV, in addition to going on to cause cancer, also uh, it's also a sexually transmitted infection. So it's the most common viral STD actually in Ireland. About six to seven thousand cases of genital mm. warts occur every year, um, and this vaccination prevents HPV-related STDs. So there's an immediate saving there, um, and then also the connection with HPV-caused cancers and the impact that those have on individuals themselves and on the health service. Mm. Um, So this would pay for itself many times over. Okay, it would be a a long-term investment, though, uh, whilst uh, the savings would be many multiples of uh, the cost, if effective, it would be over a longer period of time, obviously. Yes, absolutely. Mm. Uh, What are you expecting from uh, the Scally report? Uh, I suppose uh, there's a a lot of speculation uh, and uh, the women who have been directly uh, involved will be hoping uh, to be briefed by Dr Scally. Uh, What do you expect uh, in terms of responsibility? Um, Well, our concern in there is Cancer Society from the start, from when Vicky Phelan first um, took her case has been to ensure that the women get the answers that they deserve about what went wrong and also have the support that they need to go through what they're experiencing at the minute. So we immediately provided emergency funding for counselling. Um, our free nurse line has been helping people with information and advice. And um, We've recently set up a patient support committee that's working with Vicky Phelan and Stephen Teep, whose wife um, tragically died to cervical cancer. So that our main concern has been making sure people get the help that they need. Um, and now as we move towards the report of Scully Inquiry, getting the answers as well that they deserve and ensuring that those answers um, not only mean that the women affected get um, the full picture in terms of what went wrong with their care, but also that the health service learns those lessons and that we um, get to having the best screening service that we 
possibly can because cancer screening saves lives and I know that's something that Vicky has been at pain to stress in every interview that she's done um, since this first came out in April that if any, any of your listeners are, you know, have appointments due whether it's for cervical check or breast check or bowel screen do take them up because the best chance that you have of surviving cancer is catching it early it makes a massive massive difference and that's why you know this issue has been so damaging Mm -hmm. Um, but it's also why it's so important that government reacts in the right way to Scully and does everything that it can to maintain faith in our screening services. And do you expect it to be as I think was promised uh, the next step to a commission of investigation? Look, we won't know until the report um, is published in terms of what exactly Dr Scully has found and is recommending. Um, as I said, the key thing for us will be making sure that women get the answers that they deserve mm. and that they get the full picture. Dr Scully has been working on this now for a number of months. Um, and so th- that's the key thing. But also that, you know, tr- investigations mean nothing if things don't change. We've seen that so many times in Ireland. The important thing is that things change and that from now on patients are genuinely at the centre of care in Ireland and get are, tre- are treated truthfully and respectfully and that we learn the lessons in terms of improving the service because it's so, so important that people have faith in our screening service and that they continue to take it up. Okay, uh, and that uh, to uh, a lot of people will depend on where uh, the screens are being tested and uh, if there's confidence in the clinics that are carrying out the tests. Yes, but we're also moving towards a new system, which is HPV DNA testing, which is more accurate um, in any event than the previous one. The government had promised to introduce that later this year, so we're um, strongly pushing them to do that. But even that being the case, even with the errors that have occurred in cervical check, it is still your best chance of spotting precancerous changes in your cervix before they become problematic. Um, So that's why we would still encourage people, despite any concerns or misgivings that they may have about the error rate, to take it up. And that's why Vicky Phelan and Mm -hmm. Lord Brennan and others have done the same, as upset as people are about what went wrong in their own care they're still encouraging people to just get out there and get tested because it's the best chance you have. It's not perfect, but in terms of risk reduction, it is by far the best chance you have because your survival rates in cancer are completely different if it's caught at stage one at an early point or if it's not caught until stage three or four and screening is the best way of catching it early. Okay, hopefully this uh, report will lead to to, uh, improving on that service, which uh, I'm sure people uh, will have heard you say uh, is so important uh, that uh, they uh, take up on the the tests when they are available to them. But we leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed, as always, for joining us. Avril Parr, Chief Executive Officer of the Irish Cancer Society, brings our programme to its conclusion. Our time has run out on us once again. Before we go, our thanks to Marie Kearns for producing Maggie McGuire for researching and Chris Murray in the control term. I'm Michael. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie